Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here to start your day. We are going to be talking all sorts of things related to agriculture. And I do want to remind folks later on today, we are going to be getting the October WASDE report from USDA. The World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates report comes out at 11 o'clock Wednesday morning. We'll be discussing that tomorrow here on the program. So do stay tuned. Today, we are going to be talking about the oral arguments in the Prop 12 case before the Supreme Court yesterday. Jackie Fatka, policy editor at Farm Progress, will join us in just a moment. And in segment two, we're going to talk with Andrew Vollmer. He's a senior scholar at the Mercatus Institute, and he's been looking at polarization at the executive branch offices in D.C. and what it means for those of us trying to live under the rules these offices bring out and maybe what we can do to change it. In segment three, Tom Haig, the new president for the National Corn Growers Association, will join us. He's got harvest going on up there in Minnesota, but he's going to take a little break and talk to us about what's ahead for the NCGA. And finally, we're going to close today with John Sandbachen, executive director at the National Sunflower Association, as that harvest is also underway still in a world of tight sunflower supplies as that Russia-Ukraine conflict continues. Let's turn our focus to D.C. Let's turn our focus to the Supreme Court of the United States. Jackie Fatka, policy editor at Farm Progress, joins us. And Jackie, oral arguments yesterday in Proposition 12. How'd they go? What's been the perception so far from the industry? Hey, Jackie, I don't think we've got you on there. Can you, can you hear me there, Jackie? Check, check, check. All right, folks. Well, it appears we are having a little bit of a connection issue with Jackie. We'll try to get her lined back up here in just a moment. Not sure what's going on over there. We'll try to bring Jackie in. But while we're waiting for Jackie, we do have a recap here of that event yesterday. And Jackie, uh, sounds like we might got you in there. Can you hear me? All right. Nothing quite yet. We're going to try to get Jackie on the line here. So folks, stay tuned. We'll talk to Jackie in just a minute. But in the meantime, we are going to run through the recap here of what is going on at the Supreme Court. So yesterday, National Pork Producers and the American Farm Bureau Federation took their case to the Supreme Court. Proposition 12 is, of course, the California law that says pork cannot be sold in that state unless those sows that produced the piglets that raised it were confined in cages not less than 26 or 24 square feet. Well, that has, uh, has certainly created some challenges. It would be a huge disruption to the way the hog industry is currently uh, situated. So while HSUS, Humane Society of the United States, pushed for that law in California in 2018, National Pork Producers, American Farm Bureau, many other ag organizations worked to push back, and they were able to take this case and challenge this California law at the Supreme Court. Well, those oral arguments were yesterday, and attorneys from both the Humane Society of the United States and the National Pork Producers Council presented their cases. They talked through several different legal issues and legal standards. And now we've got Jackie Fatka back to talk through those different legal arguments. Jackie, have we got you on the line? 
We are. Technology Fantastic. Not always our friend, is it? <laughs> it is. It can be kind of fun. Jackie, let's talk about the arguments that were brought to bear yesterday. From the National Pork Producers' perspective, what were they trying to tell the Supreme Court, and what were the questions they were getting in response? You know, a lot of the discussion was about um, the, the their argument really focused on the Constitution's dormant, dormant Commerce Clause, which really is supposed to try to prevent states from enacting laws that cause a disproportionate economic impact, basically limiting that interstate commerce. And that's really what the Constitution's framers had had designed this part of the Constitution. But this is really a stretch from how it was originally written and you know it's it's going to uh require some additional probably um written in opinions from the ju justices to really get a win for the ag industry but you know those um, from the national pork producers council their chief legal strategist was really hopeful after yesterday's arguments uh you know a big part of what was discussed was, you know, it's okay to have regulations for a state because of safety reasons or, for instance, limiting firewood that comes in or certain wood to prevent pests if they're building a home. But when you have something that is a, quote, moral issue, you know, what California's moral issue is may be very different from what Iowa's moral issues are. And so this actually has a lot of implications beyond just farming and agriculture. I mean, we've heard about California's actions on electric vehicles and their different standards on things. And so what is defined as a, a moral justification is really going to impact it. It is. And Jackie, in the immediate uh, post-oral arguments phase on Tuesday, I saw comments from both NPPC and Farm Bureau and HSUS both touting their perceived success here in these oral arguments. From your perception, what, what did you, could you get a sense of where the justices were leaning or do we, are we just in the dark here until uh, several months from now? You know, I, there was a lot of really good questions and, you know, they're really asking, you know, without getting into the weeds, because I am not a lawyer, but, you know, a lot of what they were focusing on was uh, part of this too is the balkanization, right? Because California is so big, it can impact a lot on what happens otherwise. If this was Rhode Island or Wyoming implementing this law, it would not be as big of a deal, but because it's California, it matters much more. It is a much bigger market. They have influence, you know, on other issues. You know, there's other states that will follow whatever California does. And so it really does uh, matter because of the size of that. So, you know, it's hard to know for sure. There was a lot of really good questions. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily like one way or the other that we could say, oh, we definitely know this is how they're going to rule. Um, I, I think, like I said, it will require... Um, a significant change. They were talking about kind of a quote per se rule. And so they are looking to have extra definitions kind of added to the commerce clause to to justify the difference between what's maybe been ruled in the past and how this case is slightly different, but definitely could impact many, many different industries. Yes, it certainly could. And I understand that was a point the NPPC was trying to make. This could allow almost any industry in any state to put restrictions on what gets sold. And boy, that would create some changes to the market. Jackie, I did see that the one of the justices asked about how if this decision would be rendered moot by federal legislation on animal handling, and both sides said yes. Is that a possibility? Is there federal legislation about animal handling pending? 
So there's nothing, uh, you know, previously Steve King from Iowa had tried to put into the last farm bill something to actually overturn similar to this. Um, There's nothing that's ever gotten very far on the federal level. Um, And even yesterday, uh, you know, talking with folks at MPPC, uh, there's been so much focus on this court case uh, that there hasn't been as big of a push from a legislative standpoint. But, you know, we could see that uh, come into play if this case does not go in the direction that the ag industry wants. You know, we saw that with like GMO labeling, right? We did see federal legislation to try to, to heat off any of that patchwork regulatory framework. Absolutely. Lots of things to watch for. We'll be expecting this decision in the early part of 2023. Jackie Fatka, thanks so much for joining us today. Always appreciate your insight. Great talking with you, Mike. Stick around. More AOA coming up next. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. As a farmer, growing your business is more than just a nine to five. It's your life's work. That's why the Roundup Ready Extend crop system goes all in to help you stay on top. Backed by decades of innovation, offering the latest trait technology and triple herbicide tolerance, plus more weed species controlled than any other soybean system. Because you mean business, and so do we. Learn more at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. (laughs) I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Corn grain and corn gluten meal are the top two ingredients in pet food. Um, some of the efforts of the Market Development Action Team, we, we ask a lot out of chat and others when it comes to the, the scope of the portfolio of MDAT, everything from our traditional animal ag uses to what we call new uses, such as bio-based packaging, pet food space in particular, it's really interesting because they have some of the, the highest margins and there's this demand for these premium products that we're seeing where consumers are willing to pay more for um, sustainable packaging options. So this is kind of a really good market to kind of test out some of these uh, plant-based and renewable packaging solutions, which of course could be made from corn. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we talk a lot on the show about things that happen in Washington, D.C., edicts that come from there and impact the rest of us. And at the same time, we talk a lot about political polarization and how it seems to be increasing in nearly every facet of life. And it may create dramatic television, perhaps, but it makes crafting public policy difficult. And for an industry like agriculture that relies on long-term investments, we, we need to have some kind of certainty. So we're going to think about the day and particularly at the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission. We've seen some new rules promulgated this year, the climate disclosure rules, the big one that the ag industry is paying attention to. And my guest for this next segment is Andrew Vollmer. He's a senior affiliated scholar at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He has practiced law and litigation working with the SEC in private practice for many years. And he joins us to discuss polarization at that body in particular. Mr. Vollmer, thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, before we talk about polarization and its impacts, let's set the ground rules. What is the SEC and what's their purview here in American society? Now, the Securities and Exchange Commission is a federal administrative agency that regulates the purchase and sale of securities and participants in the securities markets, such as stock exchanges, broker dealers, and investment advisors. A lot of things that impact the financial perspective, financial organizations here in the United States. Uh, Mr. Vollmer, from an organizational perspective, as we dig into this polarization, how is the SEC governed? How much power do the commissioners have? Well, this is important to um, my thinking on the matter. The SEC is a commission headed by five members who engage in group deliberations and decision making. And that structure is to provide different perspectives, experience, and to promote compromise. Important for our purposes today is that Congress in the statute that established the SEC required that commissioners be from different political parties. No more than three may be from the same political party. And the law requires full commission action on nearly every decision. That means a vote from all commissioners. And a majority vote of a quorum of commissioners is needed to pass a proposal. Now, the chair okay. of the SEC has special powers on administrative and personnel matters and may act alone. Okay. All right. So now with that in perspective, from your perspective, working with the SEC over years, how have you seen increasing polarization at that body and how has it impacted their decisions and their edicts? A noticeable change occurred in early 2021 when the Biden administration began and a new acting chair took over at the SEC. The new acting chair began to pursue policies favored by the Biden administration, but she did so without taking a vote of all commissioners and without any evidence of consulting 
other commissioners. She acted on her own, which was contrary to the rules and traditions at the SEC. Now, the new permanent chair took over in April 2021 with a majority of commissioners from President Biden's party. And since then, the SEC has proposed a long list of rules to advance the liberal end of the Biden agenda. And many of the proposals are extreme, intrusive, and burdensome. And an example is the climate change disclosure proposal for publicly reporting companies. So my reaction was that these efforts reflected a winner-take-all mentality rather than a serious plan to govern a nation that is, has a closely but strongly divided electorate. So Andrew, on this climate change risk disclosure rule specifically, that is one that the ag industry is very, very concerned about. Were all five commissioners on board with getting this rule promulgated? Uh, no, they were not. The climate change disclosure proposal is a perfect example of partisan agency action. President Biden pushed for it. The acting chair of the SEC and the new permanent chair fully supported it and ran roughshod over the minority commissioners to propose a far-reaching and extreme set of disclosure rules. Now, I, I expect your audience is, uh, is familiar with the current state, but just to make sure they are, the disclosure rules have been proposed but not adopted by the SEC yet. And that is an interesting distinction. It's very compelling when we're talking about these types of, of uh, slow-moving public policy changes. What is the difference between a, a proposed rule and, a, and an actual rule? Or can you explain the distinction a little bit? So we're looking at uh, regulatory action by an agency, not by Congress and the president, so not by the legislature. And agencies have powers to adopt uh, legally binding measures called regulations or rules, but they have to follow certain procedures to adopt them um, as formal matters of law. And the way most agencies, and certainly the SEC, act is by what's called notice and comment rulemaking. So the SEC proposes a set of new rules, and they have a long explanation for them, and then, and then they allow the public to comment on those proposals. All of that has happened so far on the climate change disclosure rules. And then the SEC and it's, you know, has a very big staff, and they go away and they look at all the comments and think about them, and they can then change the proposal, uh, not dramatically, but and within certain bounds, but they can change it. Then the commissioners have a final meeting called an open meeting where they discuss what they want to do. This is all choreographed, by the way. Uh, and then they have a vote to adopt or not to adopt the proposed set of rules. Okay, that makes sense. So it's at that point, that final open meeting, that would this particular rule disclosure need consensus amongst all five commissioners in order to be uh, officially a rule? It is highly unlikely to attract a unanimous vote. It is highly likely to have the two Republican commissioners dissent. Uh, they've already expressed concerns about the 
climate change disclosure rules. But the three Democrats will nearly certainly vote to approve them. Gotcha. And dissension, as of today, is the only option for those minority commission members. There's no other recourse, is there? Not for the commissioners. That's correct. The public, you know, certain aggrieved parties can sue in a, in a court of appeals if they think the agency has acted improperly in adopting the rules. But the commissioners, the, the minority commissioners or a dissenting commissioner may only express his or her point of view. Okay. Andrew, before we let you go, I don't like talking about a problem unless there's a potential solution on the table. And you've got one proposed here to break this uh, this logjam of polarization. Talk to us a little bit about what you're thinking might be effective in reducing it in D.C. Well, my thinking is not about how to deal with polarization at the presidential or congressional level. That's beyond my ability to solve. Of I've thought, of, I've thought of, and maybe it's beyond anybody's ability, but it's certainly beyond mine. Um, I've thought about the problem at certain administrative agencies like the SEC that have several heads and members from more than one political party. Um, and maybe there are various solutions. My proposal is to require the majority of commissioners to include measures in, in certain uh, proposed actions of the SEC to attract the vote of at least one of the minority commissioners. That would be a supermajority voting requirement. And the purpose would be to set up a formal incentive for consultation and compromise among the commissioners. Now, that sounds like a very tall order in the Washington, D.C. of 2022. Andrew, do you think we could get something like that accomplished? Well, um, I have mixed views on that. Um, I think a statutory change from Congress obliging the SEC to use supermajority voting is not likely, uh, mostly because of the partisanship we've been talking about. But there's possibly a little more hope depending on the character of agency heads. At times in the past, the chair of the SEC has made a personal decision to make sure that large matters have the support of four or five commissioners. And the chairs of major agencies could make that change immediately. Yes, and we'll see if they can. Maybe some push from the folks out here in flyover country would help. Andrew Vollmer at the Mercatus Center, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. And folks, stay tuned. We'll talk to Tom Haig, new president of the National Corn Growers, when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like water hemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. <laughs> I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. 
Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Once we take a look at the market trade on this Wednesday ahead of the WASDE report, the October WASDE out from USDA at 11 a.m. Central Time. Corn and beans relatively mixed, a couple of cents either side of unchanged. Corn to the downside, beans to the upside. So a little bit of spreading of beans against corn, it appears, on Thursday ahead of the report. While the wheat market trading uh, moderately lower with some double-digit losses seen in Chicago and KC wheat, a little bit of a rain chance in the Southern Plains, also fueling some of that selling here in wheat ahead of the report now with the report we expect that usda will show a significant tightening of corn stocks and wheat stocks while soybean stocks are expected to grow the direction of changes in the corn and soybean yield estimates will set the tone though for the weeks ahead either the market has already factored in this year's crop problems or it has more to factor in but the export numbers will be big in today's report as well low water levels of the mississippi river that pushed barge freight rates sharply higher combined with the dollar at 20 year highs has made it difficult to compete on the global market Add in soft Chinese demand to that, and we could see USDA make significant cuts to its soybean export target and possibly its corn export target as well. Headlines out of Ukraine, Russia will continue to influence the markets also. Those risks have not gone away. That'll continue to be a factor until stocks build sufficiently to where it doesn't matter again. And we'll be watching those numbers again as well in the report here today. The producer price index rose 0.4% month-on-month in September, which was twice what was expected by analysts. That was out today. The core PPI rate that excludes the more volatile food and energy sectors rose 0.3% month-on-month in September. Livestock trade relatively mixed to mostly higher here ahead of the report, waiting to see what corn will do, and that could provide direction to cattle on Wednesday's trade. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our technical skills. Our math. Our engineering skills. You're going to need our help with your water. Your air. Your food. You're going to need our organizational skills. Our problem-solving skills. You're going to need our determination, our honesty, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we just talked with Andrew Vollmer there at Mercatus about the challenges in D.C. getting public policy crafted here in this era of uh, political partisanship and brinksmanship. And 
this next segment, we're going to talk to one of those folks who advocates for the industry of agriculture directly into that environment. He's the new president of the National Corn Growers Association, Tom Haig from Eden Valley, Missouri, joins us now. Tom, how's harvest looking up there in Minnesota? Uh, we're uh, we're getting uh, closer to uh, finishing up with soybeans. Uh, then we're starting into corn. Uh, there's a number of uh, guys that have started corn, but then uh, not a lot. You know, they're just getting going. Getting those noses into the combines. Does it look like it's going to be a good crop up there this year? You know, certain areas, it's, it's going to be a very good area. My area, we were dry during June and July, so we didn't get a, a lot of good uh, moisture during that time. So uh, our lighter soil, there's very, very small amounts of uh, bushels there. But on our better ground, uh, it's okay. It's going to be a below average crop the way it looks, but uh, that's why we carry crop insurance. Absolutely, it is why we carry crop insurance. And Tom Haig, I think you know exactly how a segue works. Let's talk Farm Bill 2023. We'll be back in Washington. All of these issues will be under discussion. Crop insurance is a key one for you as this discussion heats up, isn't it? That's right. Uh, that's, we've made that as NCGA our top priority to keep crop insurance just uh, you know the way it is. It, it's working. Farmers are taking the crop insurance. Uh, Minnesota alone, 95% of the corn farmers use crop insurance. So, you, you know, you can get to choose what level you want to be. If you want to be at the top, okay. If you want to be down a little bit. But, uh, it, you know, it's a safety net that we don't want to use, but we need it when we have to, when uh, we just don't get the crop that we uh, normally want to get. Certainly, and the variability we've seen with La Nina over the past couple of years, particularly in the Western Corn Belt, has really brought the benefits of that home. Tom, as you prepare for these discussions, are there advocates for changing or reducing crop insurance ahead that we should be aware of? Well, there's always there's always groups out there that want to change crop insurance because it's uh, you know it, it's it's federally funded, but you know this is a public private entity that it, it works, but. Uh, that's the, the main thing, but I think we have enough of the politicians understand that this is the best safety net for farmers instead of saying, okay, now we're going to pay out so much money now, so much money then. This is about as equal as, as you can get towards uh, payment to farmers. That is true. It has been vital for crop insurance and for risk management on the farm for some time. Glad to have it's going to have a strong voice in D.C. as this next Congress heats up. But Tom, it's not just crop insurance. We've also got biofuels policy that, of course, NCGA is keeping an eye on. Are you excited to start the push for the Next Generation Biofuels Act again and see what kind of legs we can get in Congress? That's, uh, that's, that's like I say, that's number two on our, uh, with the Next Gen Fuel Act, uh, with using ethanol to you know, we got it started in the House, and then it was introduced to the Senate. So uh, it, it, it seems like it's just kind of with the politicians now, they're in the, uh, you know, re-election mode. So we're probably going to have to introduce it again to the, the new uh, political parties at the, well, I mean, not the parties, but at the House and the Senate. And but we hope we have enough momentum, and that'll push through and uh we think it's a great bill that uh, give us a chance to uh, compete one-on-one, -on -one, apples to apples, that we can compete with the electric vehicles. That is impressive. Tom, just for our listeners who might not be as plugged into these proposed rules, what is the Next Generation Biofuels Act, and how's it going to help fuel biofuel policy going forward? So what it, what it, what it is, is eventually we're going to work our way up to 
using a 98 RON, which is equivalent to 30% ethanol in a high compression engine. So that's uh, we want to ramp that up. So you're going to have a, you know, using 30% ethanol in with your gasoline, and what uh, it's it, it's cleaner air coming out of the exhaust. It's a more renewable feature in corn that we're using. So it just ramps up the amount of ethanol that's going to be put into a gallon of gasoline. And uh, like I say, we're excited. We know we can work with it. Indeed. And Tom, we've certainly seen ethanol be in the spotlight here over this past year as fuel has gone to crazy prices here with inflation. Are you excited to see that enthusiasm for ethanol continue? Do you think it will last as we get into the winter? Well, I, I, I sure hope so because, you know, it's a, uh, we, we've proven it's, it's the cheapest octane that the refineries can use to put into their gasoline to make, you know, so they get to the right levels that they need to. There's a lot of other ones out there that they can use, but they're more expensive. Ethanol is the cheapest. Uh, we grow it right here. At this in uh, Minnesota, we figure that's our uh, oil wells out there when we're growing corn, you know, and then you get your carbon scores out of here and we just think there's a lot of positive things with uh, growing corn towards the ethanol and uh, the other features that uh, corn can do. That is good news, Tom. But of course, the role at NCGA isn't just cheerleading for positive aspects for corn growers. It's also keeping track of those things that could impact our production. And we've seen the EPA taking a close look at atrazine this year. NCGA has been all over it. Is that a battle that's going to continue into your term? That's uh, one of the first things that I wanted to bring up when uh, when I turned president, I said, we need to do a last call of action to get the farmers to, uh, you know, to report to EPA, give them your statement, give them what you have, and why it's so important. You know, atrazine's been around for over 50, 55 years. I mean, I remember as a young kid, that was the first chemical we used on our farm, and we continue to use it, but at a smaller rate, when you add that little bit of atrazine to so many other of these chemicals, it seems like it's a little igniter that it just uh, makes that chemical work that much stronger. And if uh, if we would happen to lose atrazine, we are going to have different farming practices uh, to control some of these weeds again. So and we don't want to do that. No, that would be quite a steep learning curve, Tom. EPA has finished that comment period that closed up after your big call of action to get those growers to submit their comments. What's the next step from the EPA? What should we be watching about atrazine's future usage? I think we just got to keep keep watching and, and see what happens. And when it does, if they when they do make a ruling or whatever, we want to make sure we're up to that. What was it? Fifteen point three parts per billion in the water and they want to drop it down to 3.4 we need to keep it up there so i guess the biggest thing is if uh, we have to wait and see what they decide but uh, we want to make sure that we're ready for a rebuttal to back to them if it's not uh, really what we want would like to see all right. We'll be keeping an eye on that NCGA, watching that issue closely as those EPA will be as the EPA will be releasing their rules later on this year. Tom, uh, Tom I've got to ask you here: if we're getting ready for some fall fertilizer applications, looking ahead to summer, and in in Minnesota, you're up there at the very top end of the Mississippi River Basin. How does fertilizer availability and pricing look for this next year in your neck of the woods? 
you know, is the availability is you had to talk to all your suppliers here early to make sure uh, it's there. But uh, I'll tell you what, that price tag is right there with it. And uh, going into this coming spring, the cost per acre will probably, in my 40-plus years of farming, is going to be the highest it's going to cost with uh, just for fertilizer alone going in. We're looking at anywhere from was using potash, nitrogen, and you know our, our key fertilizers. We're looking at maybe 350 to 375 an acre. That's just for those products right there, and that's uh, that's getting too high. It's uh, there there there's reasons uh, they're doing this, but uh, you know NCG has been after and talking and saying this is not fair. Just because our prices come up a little bit. Doesn't mean they have to increase their prices up 200 to 300 percent. That's the truth. But that is what has happened. I know NCJ was active in working to get some tariffs rolled back. Tom, are there any trade issues that could help fertilizer that we're working on now, or are we just at the uh, the mercy of the markets for the time being? I think we're just at mercy at the markets, you know, because I think uh, we we we've, we've talked enough with them with, with the tariffs and all that. You know, when, when it comes down to the tariffs, we're the ones that are going to have to pay that increase in uh, price again. So I think they, we've got that maybe under control a little bit, but it's just the uh, high price of fertilizer that uh, we're going to continue to have conversations with uh, the companies and uh, hopefully that uh, they, they'll, they'll start to come down a little bit to make things cheaper. Absolutely. Tom, before we let you go, another concern that I'm hearing from a lot of growers this year, supply chain issues, low water on the Mississippi. Anything NCG is advocating for that could help improve that maybe longer term? Uh, that's just something that's new getting started with this, Mike. Uh, we're concerned about it because, you know, it's uh, it's costing more to get our product down. But just like we mentioned, the Mississippi River is also important for those barges coming back up, up the river to northern Iowa, Minnesota, for, with fertilizer and other goods that, that we have. So it's a concern. We, uh, we'll have to be in conversation with the, the – you see what the U.S. Corps of Engineer does and see if they have to do some more dredging or something. But, uh, you know, it all takes time. And uh, who would ever believe that we'd have to worry about low water levels right now uh, – on all the rivers yeah. in, uh, that feed the Mississippi, just not the Mississippi, but all the rivers. That's, that's just unheard of. It is. It is a scary situation. As Tom mentioned there, it is that double-edged effect hitting the marketing, the green we're selling, and hitting the purchasing, the fertilizer we're bringing up. Tom Haig, new president of the National Corn Growers Association. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tom. Thanks, Mike. And just remind all our farmers out there, be safe this fall. Absolutely, folks. Take that extra minute at harvest. Stay safe. We'll be back for more AOA when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. 
The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Corn grain and corn gluten meal are the top two ingredients in pet food. Um, some of the efforts of the Market Development Action Team, we, we ask a lot out of chat and others when it comes to the, the scope of the portfolio of MDAT, everything from our traditional animal ag uses to what we call new uses, such as bio-based packaging, pet food space in particular. It's really interesting because they have some of the, the highest margins and there's this demand for these premium products that we're seeing where consumers are willing to pay more for um, sustainable packaging options. So this is kind of a really good market to kind of test out some of these uh, plant-based and renewable packaging solutions, which of course could be made from corn. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seed has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is Poison Help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison Help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. 
Save Poison Help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. Over the past year, we have seen a lot of American commodities move into the spotlight as global trends really kind of change the supply and demand picture for those. And one of the commodities that saw some of the, the biggest volatility in prices and in export availability were sunflower. Sunflower oil, sunflower seeds, both. And American producers have been working hard. Joining us to talk about that sunflower harvest here in the U.S. is John Sandbachen. He's the executive director of the National Sunflower Association. And John, how's harvest coming on America's sunflower crop? Well, you know, we've, we've gotten started here like in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, harvest overall in the U.S., about 12% of the crop has been harvested and it's in the bin. Um, so far, things are looking very promising. The yields that I've heard, anywhere from 24 to 2,900 pounds an acre. So, you know, looking really good right now. That is good to hear because, John, a lot of sunflower producers were facing challenges with weather this year across much of the territory, weren't they? You know, definitely. You know, we got a little bit later start this spring because of the April blizzards we had here in the Northern Plains. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit, you know, kind of a, in, in doubt as to what kind of a crop we were going to have. But while things sure turned around, we got warm weather in June, July, and August. And, uh, crop, you know, the crop caught up and it's looking really good right now. John, you mentioned about 11-12% of the crop in the bin as of Monday's report. That is running a little bit behind uh, the five-year average. Was that because of late plantings due to the wetness in the spring? You know, definitely, you know, it's it's just that we, we would have been started probably about a week earlier than, you know, if it would have been on a normal schedule. And, um, you know, just one of those things that, you know, if the weather stays the way it is, dry and, and warm, you know, we'll easily catch up to that five-year average and probably even move a little bit ahead. All right. Well, that is good news, John. But, of course, supply is one side of the equation. Demand's the other. What have you been seeing on the demand picture as the, the global sunflower and oil market continues to be so wild? Well, you know, ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we probably could have sold twice as much sunflower oil as we had available here in the U.S. Uh, the demand from buyers that have not bought sunflower oil in a long time have been just really coming forward. And every, you know, situation where we could be selling oil, I mean, we definitely had opportunities. And, uh, you know, it was an unfortunate situation, but obviously, thank God the U.S. was here to step up and take care of some of those needs. Absolutely. Can you give our listeners who might not be sunflower growers what prices have done, at least relative to recent history? Was it a was it a doubling of price effectively early in the year? Well, you know, we, we topped out at about $43 a hundred wage, which was a brand new record. The previous record was at $38. So we were significantly above that. And those producers that sold at those prices really made some good money. And with the oil premium that, you know, the crush plants pay, some of those folks were close to $50 a hundred weight, which is just un unheard of. 
That is incredible. John, have those prices maintained or are they coming back now that some harvest pressure is showing up in the markets? You know, we, we, we have backed off somewhat. We're right now we're about that twenty eight to twenty nine dollar range, you know, for, for you know the crop that's being delivered to the crush plants right now. But when you look at it historically, you know, we're probably in that eighteen to twenty cent hundred weight, so we're still significantly above, you know, what that historical average is. All right. Well, that's interesting. So if we're above the historical average, John, the next question as you look out to next year's planting intentions is input costs are way up as well. A, is that true in sunflowers? And B, are these current prices going to be enough to get the acres you need for next year? Well, you know, that's one of our goals, obviously, to build on the momentum that we had this year. And, you know, 2023 new car prices are out already. We're in that 26 to $27 range, which also is above average. You know, historically, when we rolled out on new crop, we were right around that 17, 18 cents a hundredweight. Um, input costs are going to be something that every crop is going to face. And, and I think, you know, what producers are going to do is they're going to sit down and sharpen their pencils and figure out which crop works best in their rotation and where they can make the most amount of money. And sunflower prices right now are looking very attractive when you look at it historically. John, with the attractive prices out there, with the demand you're seeing from global exporters and domestic users, is there talk in the sunflower industry of bringing new crush facilities to the market? You know, there, there's going to be a new crush plant that, that's being built in South Dakota. It's, it's going to be a multi-seed plant. It's going to crush soybeans and sunflower, but that, that's going to be a couple years down the road. But you know, it's one of those things that when you look at oil demand here just in the U.S., our consumption of sunflower in the U.S. has increased by 50% in just the last five years. So, you know, the market is definitely growing, and there's a lot of potential for it to grow further in the future, and that's why this plant is coming online. All right. We'll be watching for that. It'll be interesting to see if these elevated prices and this global unrest pushes more money into the sunflower space. John, I do understand that uh, the NSA Research Forum is going to be coming up in January. Oh, are you seeing fresh interest? Are, are new people taking a look at the sunflower industry? Well, you know, definitely. We, we, you know, sunflower has really been real top of mind. Obviously, with sustainability being an issue, drought, dry conditions being an issue, a lot of researchers are looking at what they can do in sunflower as far as, you know, increasing yields in hybrids or making them more disease resistant or producing more oil and, and you know, more yield. So uh, we've had a lot of interest, you know, from, from different producers and, I mean, should say different researchers from various states and uh, looking forward to seeing what we can have as far as good research results. That is neat. John, I've got kind of a wild card question for you here over the past year as sunflowers moved into the spotlight. Did you see acres explode in any unexpected places? Did we add any new producers anywhere for uh, sunflower production? You know, we did. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, there, there were folks, in, especially here in North Dakota, that had planted sunflowers for the first time. And it's one of those things where maybe their, their grandfather planted them or their dad might have planted them a few years ago and, and people got back into them. And, you know, from, from my, some of my discussions with them, they're very happy with the crop. Obviously, a little bit of a learning curve, but, you know, thinking that this might be something they're going to have in their rotation long term. That is fantastic. That's to see new rotations come in, to see new avenues for profitability emerge on farms across this country. That's a win for agriculture. John, if we've got listeners who maybe didn't jump into sunflowers last year, but are intrigued by uh, what's coming in that market, where can they go for more information? How can they keep in touch with the NSA? Well, you know, one of the best sources of information is our website. That's www.sunflowernsa.com. And it, we have daily market prices on there, research information, just hybrids to select, uh, places where you can sell the crop, and just growing tips. 
All of it right there, folks. Check that out. John Sandbach, an executive director of the National Sunflower Association. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike, for having your program. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll be talking WASD for October. We'll also be talking dairy with Tanner Emke. We'll see you then for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. We all know clean fields lead to strong yields. That's why ExtendFlex soybeans offer triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate to control more weed species than any other soybean system. Even tough weeds like water hemp, palmer amaranth, and mare's tail. Get the control, flexibility, and proven performance you need so you can focus on the business at hand instead of beating back weeds. Explore the Roundup Ready Extend crop system at systemofchoice.com. Claim based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Read and follow pesticide label directions, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too to be a beacon of strength, a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. You are not alone because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.